Okay. Welcome, Hannah. Lovely to have you with us. Okay, so you've come in the middle. We're exploring this idea of right now because of the time period that we're in, there's this um, sense of communal sadness because this, this time period of the three weeks marks a uh, historical series of tragedies which affected the Jewish people during these times. Climaxing with uh, this coming Sunday, which is the date that both temples were destroyed, that the Jews were kind of were denied the right to enter Israel historically. It's the date of the Spanish expulsion of the Jews from Spain. It's the date where the First World War began, which kind of inevitably led into the Second World War, which brought about the greatest tragedy that we experienced in modern time. So we're in a very sad period of time, and there's certain mandated practices which actually call on us to embrace the sadness, which is counterintuitive, because people generally assume that sadness is something we should avoid. And yeah, we see that our guideline in our spiritual year incorporates as much as it does happiness and freedom from limiting beliefs and other powerful emotional tides. One of them is confronting the painful reality of our present existence. Being able to have the courage to stare that in the, in the face. And not, not be intimidated. And the theme, the theme of the sadness really is it's like a, a relationship gone wrong. When you have tried to mend the relationship, but you're just so, so far away from, from reconnection. And there are many different visions of how do we experience uh, what people miscommunicate as what Judaism and they say it's an ism, it's a religion. And we spent a couple of days ago a lot of time explaining how it's not that at all. It's sometimes just a state of being. But there's another way that we can focus on it, that the primary point of what we call Judaism, but I don't want to say Judaism, the primary point of engaging in a fully expansive Torah life is it focuses on a relationship. And the relationship that focuses, it has two different aspects to it. One is a spiritual relationship with Hashem, and the other is a interpersonal relationship with the people around us. And there are a lot of overlaps between those two fundamental avenues of connection. But what this time period focuses on, it appears, is our relationship with Hashem, and how that's become quite dislocated and quite far and quite inaccessible. Ironically, though, and this is where the twist comes, what embodies that distance is the fragmentation of our connection to other people. So this is how it works historically. The temple is destroyed, and the prophets seek a reason for the destruction, Andy, of the temple. And the reason they find isn't, oh, well, the Jews weren't 
devout and fervent enough about their religious endeavors. Oh, the Jews weren't praying hard enough. Oh, the Jews weren't engaged in proper mitzvah observance. No! Quite simple. There was a fragmentation of connection between people known as causeless hatred. There was hatred. People didn't like each other. That's a bizarre reason for the dislocation of a spiritual connection. You think, well, listen, you know, okay, I can get along with Eitan, but I'm a, I'm a from guy. I can shockle back and forth whilst I dive and I can swing like a pendulum. Yeah. So what, 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 what is, what is, what is at the heart of that? It seems that it's impossible to have unhealthy relationships in our life and have a healthy relationship with Hashem. It's, it's either both or neither. That's pretty freaky, right? Why is that freaky for you, Abe? Because it means some, it, it, sometimes it makes it like choosing between God and people. But it's not. Right. God is, is in people. Right. Right. And it goes so far, this, this idea, it goes so far, which, which is a little bit quirky. A non-Jew comes up to Hillel Azokin, the great elder, the sage Hillel, and says, tell me, I would like to become Jewish. First goes to Shammai, Hillel's colleague. And he says to Shammai, this, this man, he says, tell me I would like to convert to Judaism. And Shammai says, okay, he says, I just have one stipulation. I want you to do it while standing on one foot. And the premise is he couldn't stand on one foot for very long. So Shammai says, I'm sorry, that's, that's not possible. So he goes over to Hillel. He says, convert me to Judaism while standing on one foot. Hillel says, no problem. I can do that. And he tells him this pithy little statement. He says, What is hateful to you, don't do to others. That is the entirety of the Torah. The rest is just an explanation of that. Go learn. Now, Shai, does that make sense to you? The statement is intuitive, but it's connected to the rest of the Torah. That's a problem, right? Yeah. If you think about it and you, you kind of look at your, your Jewish day, it doesn't seem to be a reflection of that principle, it seems to be a reflection of other principles. So when you put on six in the morning, you're not thinking, well, what's hateful to me, I shouldn't do to others. And, and when you go to your morning prayers, you're not thinking what's hateful to do to you when you go and you watch him. Something very interesting just came across my mind. Absolutely, so, in well, at least in my experience, um, when you start, well, more famously, when I, when, I. when I started, like, well, trying to understand people more, it's it felt like because I more well well understood essentially the finite, which is people. It allows you to give some level of a stepping, or well, me to give some level of a stepping stool to understand, well, the infinite, which is Hashem. Can you tell, how, explain to me how they work? Can you give me an example? Because, well, I can't possibly fathom what on earth is going on with 
like God's thoughts or feelings. Right. Thought, I'm me. I'm right. God. Right. But I know God made everything around me. Right. And I can relate to people. And if you're disconnecting from people, well, how can you possibly expect to relate to God? Because you're disconnecting from the only thing around you that you could try to connect to him with. Hmm, that's really interesting. So I think what you've inadvertently uncovered is a, a jewel. Eitan, this is you and I having a discussion. And uh, you can be a... I'll be the atheist, you can be the religious person. <laughs> Ask me how the world began. How do you think the world began? Uh, Big Bang. How'd that begin? There's like stuff around. Where'd that come from? I don't know. Why do you think there's a Big Bang? Well, that's what science kind of hypothesizes. Who's science? Doesn't it change all the time anyways? Or you believe. I believe if you don't do things that you would hate, to other people. Come on, mate. Who made the world? <laughs> Alright. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a God. Now you could ask me what who created it? God. Who created God? So there's an axiom that God always existed. So there's an axiom that there's always stuff. What's that? There was an axiom that there's always stuff that made the Big Bang. Right. No, that's true. In that plane, we're even. Well, here we go. Here we go. We just don't even plane. Meaning, neither of us can understand the existence of the universe. We both get to the same problem. Since our brains only operate in the realm of cause and effect, and we can only understand things rationally by something which was, came from something which made it be, we can't fathom the idea of something that was always there or something that had no cause to it. As we try to think about it, it's almost like I feel a short circuit in my brain. Because my brain doesn't cover that sphere. It doesn't have enough of a bandwidth. It's very much like my ears can't hear certain frequencies. If it's too low, it's too high. I just won't hear it. The sound is there, but I can't hear it. Because my ears designed to hear within a range of frequency. My eyes can only see a certain spectrum of light. Beyond that, they just can't see it because that's what my eyes do. So my physical senses have their cap. They have their limitation. One of the things that we have to recognize is that our brain can't help us to solve the riddle of existence because it's not designed to do that. It's beyond the frequency that we can engage in. So once we recognize that, we have to resort to the fact that the fundamental question of what is it that I'm doing here or why am I here or what this thing is, is a question that can't be answered by the rational mind. And that, I think, is just an exploration and an expansion of what you were saying, Shimon, that, well, how do you connect to this thing that your normal faculty of connection becomes defunct when engaging with it? Fundamentally, we have now stumbled across a gold mine because the fundamental question of any spiritual pursuit is you're trying to connect to a being, being that you can't possibly fathom anything about. It's a very nature is beyond the construct of your normal mode of operation. And therefore we become trapped. And this is multiple reflections and creates multiple questions which actually open up to us the doors of spirituality. One of these is a very interesting point. 
The only thing we can say, like, like Eitan said, we have to have axioms. Meaning, we perhaps can't grasp what infinity is, and we can't grasp what infinity is, but we can see evidence of infinity in our life. So, for example, were I to say to you, Ralph, that I've bought a coffee machine which has an infinite supply of coffee. Thought about this way too long. Yeah. So what happens is every morning I turn up, I turn up with a cup of coffee, and you say to me, "Well, where does the coffee come from?" I say, "I've got an infinite coffee machine." Wow. Then one day, I come up and you say, "Where's your coffee?" I say, "I ran out." One thing you know is my coffee machine is not infinite. <laughs> so when you think about infinite, infinity, I don't understand infinity, but I can see the stuff that it does. So now we can start to make room. To, we can't understand the way that Hashem is, but we can see what He does. And here becomes the, the entrance point for spiritual growth. We can't understand anything about Hashem. In fact, the axiom is that our brains don't do that job at all. So the only thing we can understand is that I can't understand anything. However, I can experience the impact of His existence. And the way I experience the impact of existence is through the created world. <coughs> so, the first premise that I have is that if there's a notion of a creator, the notion is that the creator always was and always will be. And that his essence is completely incomprehensible to me. But that any existence is a cause of, is caused by his being. And therefore, when I experience the created world through these, through this lens, I recognize that without him, there would be nothing. And without everything, he would still be. Because he's not dependent on the world, but the world is dependent on him. That's called creator. Creator means he makes everything happen, but if nothing happens, he's still there. Now, it's quite interesting because this is liturgically expressed in a beautiful poem that is part of, uh, an integral part of our daily and festival service. It's called Adoin Alom. And if you go through this little verse, um, these little verses, it actually gives over the most profound teachings of this idea of eternity meshing with the physical and time-bound world. And that's really what the poem explores. I don't know if any of you have seen it in that light, but now would probably be a good time to go through it and experience it. So if I can perhaps bother you to experience it. So I don't know long is the way it begins is is very interesting. Um, it says, Adon Olam. Adon Olam. Adon means the master. Olam means the world. So, you could translate it as the master of the world. But, thank you very much. But, the word Olam has another connotation to it as well. And that connotation is one of hiddenness, ne'elam. Adon olam, so the world of 
camouflage. It's almost as if the way we perceive the physical world as, I don't know if you've ever dressed up in fancy dress and worn a mask. So the mask, it has to fit to go into your face. So in a way it expresses you, but it actually hides you. So the world is a mask. Adon Olam, master of this world, Asher Molach, that was ruling the term called Yetzir Nivro, before any creation was created. So here we have the idea of what you call the axiom of eternity. At the time when was made with his will everything, then king, his name was called. So this is the shift. The idea of Malchus kingship means that there is a governing control center to the operations that exist within the universe. And the shift that occurred from the first verse describes the creator before creation and the second verse describes the creation and the consequence and the consequence of creation is kink. That there's something controlling the system. This Abraham as a spiritual intuitive developed into what became as known as monotheism. That there's a single governing force which manipulates literally every single molecule in the universe. And there is no chance of coincidence, but everything has deliberate construct design, both within the actual physical nature of material, of matter, but also the manipulations of historical events over time, and also in my personal history and the interactions that I have on a day-to-day basis, all have some gigantic guiding force that orchestrates a myriad of variables in order to create a desired result. For example, me to be challenged in a certain way, the train has to break down at a certain stop and the person sitting next to me has to say a certain comment so I can respond or not respond. So that requires an immaculately well-conceived set of operations that can put every single person in every single place at precisely the right time. It's almost completely, we get into that mind-boggling situation again where we can't comprehend how all those variables and factors can be perfectly aligned in order to produce everything for everyone at all times. What did you say? <coughs> oh, God, you man. What are you talking about? What did you say when the person made the comment on the train? Oh, what did I say when the person made the comment on the train? Actually, it was a comment on the bus because the train broke down today. <laughs> what was the comment? The comment was, does this bus go to the Davidka? My response was, no, mate. <laughs> you, you, you also got you also got messed over because the train stopped. He goes, yes, and he was on the wrong bus. And I can show deep compassion for him because I completely related to him. Thank you for being the person you are, and <laughs> you can leave now. I'm joking. <laughs> so there, here we go. So in those first two verses, you this dramatic transition. So let's see what happens. Furthermore, just experiences, experiences with me, because you've probably said I don't know hundreds, if not thousands of times, and you've probably never thought about this before. Like this is containing the secret 
of the mysteries of creation. And it goes on and says, And after everything is gone, he'll still be ruling in his awesomeness. So in other words, there's before and there's after. But really, there always was and there always will be. And essentially what the poet is reflecting in his words is that existence is dependent on him. He's independent of existence. Reality, the universe, is dependent on him. He's independent of the, of the universe. And then it sums it up. He was. He is. And he always will be. In glory. Step number one of this entrance into the notion of what godliness is all about. Because there's a very important principle, and this is one of the things that we're struggling with in the development of our spiritual goal. You can never believe in something you can't define. It's, a, it's, it's ludicrous. What do you believe in? I believe in God. What does that mean? I don't know. Something. So what do you believe in? <laughs> I don't know. Like something. So it means you don't know what you believe. I don't believe in something. Do you believe in the Gashuftana? A Gashuftana. You gotta speak English. Ah. It's like a little bit like a person once went to the Western Wall and, uh, he went to the, then there was uh, the Roshiv of Asia Torah's name was Noah Weinberg. He's a very, very charismatic, intelligent and super, super caring, but witty person. So this person came and he had complaints. He went to the, he went to the Kota, went to the Western Wall and he said, he went to Rabbi Noah Weinberg. He said to him, didn't see anything, man. He says, well, what do you want to see? So he said, well, I thought I'd see, like, you know, spirituality. So he said, okay, I get it. You didn't see spirituality. Did you see a bifustic? So he said, a what? He said, a bifustic. He said, um, well, I don't know. He said, why don't you know? He says, well, because I don't know what a bifustic is. So he said, there you go. <laughs> Another great story that's often told about Reb Noach which is a great story. Um, a guy came to him and he said to him, would you like to pursue, pursue a spiritual path? Guy says, I don't need to. He says, why not? He says, me and God, we like this. Tight. <laughs> he says, tell me the story. So he says, well, I was, I was riding my bike up a steep hill. And as I turned a, a hairpin bend, a truck came careening down at an insane speed. And the only way that I could avoid it was I turned my bike and my bike slipped over the edge of the cliff. And as I was plummeting down, I called out and I said, God, if you exist, save me. And as I said that, my shirt got caught on a branch and I was suspended in the day. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so he managed to grab onto the branch and call his way back up to safety. And he said, me and God like this. So Ibnach sits there thinking. He says, so you like, God saved you. He goes, yeah, God saved me. He said, we pushed you off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a one without the other, mate. <laughs> Food for thought. Whoa. So, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, so that's, so that's, uh, so that's, that's this idea of, of, um, creation. You can only believe in what you do. You can only believe in what you can define. Belief, you can only believe in what you can define. So if, over here, Adon Olam is giving us a definition of the, of what, what do we believe in? What do we believe in? What is it? So there's something axiomatic, like you said, that our brains can't fathom. It, it always was and always will be. And that always was and always will be is also the source of all reality as we know it. 
And there's all different ways of saying this. You can say this like, well, all I am is a thought in God's mind. But whenever we use analogy, so we're only borrowing an idea. And then the verse goes on and says, And now we go on to a further definition of what this powerful creative force is. He's one and he's not two. Meaning, there's not duality in the world. And this is very counterintuitive because we normally look upon the struggle of good and evil as two disparate opposing forces, which one opposes the other. So the classic example is, pick your famous novel or book, but it's it's beautifully illustrated in The Lord of the Rings, a book you may have read, a movie you may have seen. And the fight is between the Dark Lord, Zoro, who lives in the land of Mordor, and he has the power of the rings, and Frodo, our valiant hero. And when that conflict is presented, it's exciting because there's a good chance that Frodo may lose the battle and the world will be engulfed by darkness as the Lord of Darkness will rule over them. That means that fundamentally there are two conflicting forces, opposing forces in the creation. That's what I can say, the battle of good against evil. When you perceive the world in that light, there's no oneness, but there's two-ness. Because Good has agenda number one, and bad is a completely different agenda. That's a world of fragmentation, that's a world of duality. Two things. If we say, there's no duality in the world, which means there's only one thing. Yet we see there is bad, yet we see there is evil, yet we know the creator is only good, yet we see it's how do you resolve that. There's a fascinating analogy that's often quoted from the mystical sefer, the Zohar HaKadosh. And the analogy quotes a parable of a king. In order to bring out the moral fiber of his son, he needs to test him. Because if you're never confronted by a test, you never get an opportunity to flex the muscles that will bring you the strength of self-development. Very much like if you never go to the gym and work against the resistance of a weight, you can't build a muscle. Even though you have every intention of going, it's not going to build the muscles. Building the muscles comes from the resistance. Similarly, building myself comes from resistance. And when I overcome resistance, that's when I grow. And if you never give an opportunity to overcome resistance, you can never grow. So this king says, well, I've got a perfect way of guaranteeing my son's development of moral fiber. I'm going to hire a prostitute to seduce him. And the prostitute is employed by me with the goal of seducing him. And she wins when she fails. So when she goes in, tries to seduce my son, and he has a moral fiber to resist the temptation, so then she, ironically, internally, is as happy as I am. Because ultimately, I employed her to make it look as if it was. It's a camouflage, a disguised goodness taking on an apparel of evil. So the way that we understand evil is the resistance which allows good to exist. And arguably, without that resistance present in the world, there could be no anything. Because the world would be a pre-programmed, instinctive, robotic fulfillment of an inescapable choice. 
but now that evil exists, so now we struggle, we are conflicted, we have opposition, we have opposition, we have opposing forces which pull us aside, and the only way we can rectify and affirm our spiritual solitude and fortitude is by resisting those temptations. So really, the Lord of the Rings is an incorrect analogy to the way we perceive good and evil. We understand that evil is serving good, and they are not two disparate agendas, but they actually are aligned to the same, they both got the same goal. When evil tries to overcome you, his ultimate, its ultimate, the ultimate purpose is to bring out more good. And therefore anything bad is there for good. And any negative situation is to bring out more good. And the bad has no long-term existence. It's simply a functional existence to facilitate greater goodness. And that's a fundamental principle. But as we hit this line, He's one. There is no second one. There's only one controlling power in the world. There's nothing that even can be analogous to him or even could be connected to him. Belireshis has no beginning. Belisachis has no end. Veloya Oizamisra. To him is power. To him is control. And then the verses then go into a relationship. Until now it's been a very distant perspective and now it becomes personalized. Vuhu Kali and he's my God. And he's involved in my life. And he takes a personal interest in me. Vuchai Goyali. He's alive and he redeems me when I get into trouble. He's the rock of my sorrow. sorrow. I mean, he supports me when I'm in a narrow place, in a constricted place. He's my banner. He's my refuge. He's my portion. When I call out. In his hand, I will deposit my spirit. Ba'isishon, at the time of sleep, ira and I will awaken. Ve'imruchi, and with my spirit, Kviyasi is my body. Hashem li, Hashem is to me, ira and I will have no fear. So obviously we can spend a lot more time on that summation, but you see the shift between this beginning part to the end part, and this is just a small glimpse, scratching a small part of the surface of Adonalam, trying to connect us back to the place that we need to be. Thank you for your patience and understanding.